Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code Hang up. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 8th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about what was a pretty miserable Super Bowl, one in which the Denver Broncos won 24-10, frustrating Cam Newton and the Panthers with their defensive might and their ability to fumble the ball less often than Carolina did. Joining us for our second segment will be Jeff Schwartz, a former offensive lineman for the Panthers who now plays on the line for the New York Giants. He'll help us assess the play of the Broncos Super Bowl MVP, Von Miller. And finally, Rob Tanner, who covers Leicester City Football Club for the Leicester Mercury, will be here to tell us about the team that's shockingly at the top of the standings in England's Premier League. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic and a man who knows why punters wipe their hands on their butts before every punt. Yeah, we, we won the internet last night, Josh. That's probably a bit of a boast. We have a lot, we got a lot of retweets and a likes for our, for our exchange got, about punters wiping their hands on their butts. Um, it was an enlightening... enlightening uh, I think it uh, added a lot to the understanding of the game. It did. Uh, Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. How do you feel about punters wiping their hands on their butts? I think that your Twitter conversation drew some of the eyeballs, but it was basically at the end of it when you both kissed Papa John. That's what really got people (laughs) excited. Papa John is the the wiping your hands on your butt of pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think the Budweiser emoji was too much? I thought that, yeah, a little over the top. I also thought that when you guys, you know, demonstrated that you were really well qualified to talk about this, and all of a sudden Chris Martin just crouched down in between you, stealing your thunder, <laughs> that was uncool. 
Well, there was a lot of opportunity in this game, and we'll get to that, to watch punters wiping their hands on their butts. Um, on our bonus segment, first Slate Plus members, Slate contributor Justin Peters, who just completed a project, and it was quite a project, where he watched the first 49 Super Bowls in less than two months. We'll be here to tell us why he ranked Super Bowl 50 as the 11th worst of all time. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and the other Slate podcasts, Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus, and you can get a free two-week trial. And the URL again, it's slate.com slash hangupplus. So not a good game. That's that's how I'm going to start this segment. What are some What are some of your favorite not a good game stats, Mike? <laughs> Do you like... Do you like uh, winning team one for 14 on third down? That's it. That's it. The one for 14 on the non-scoring drives. And some of those scoring drives lasted all of 11 yards. They gained on the non-scoring drives. The Broncos gained less fewer than 10 yards of offense on all of their non-scoring drives. Seven three and outs and seven when you add in uh, sacks and uh, penalties. Fewer than 10 yards of offense. It tied a record for the second most punts. Combined in Super Bowl history, 15, 8 by the Broncos, 7 by the other team, the Panthers. Uh, and that's way by – I think the record is almost unassailable. 21 punts in the Ravens' 34-7 blowout of the Giants in Super Bowl 35. So Denver could have won the game um, without scoring an offensive touchdown. They just sort of tacked one on at the end pointlessly. Um, and it was barely an offensive touchdown. Let's be <laughs> no, clear. No, it was I mean, a very st- offensive touchdown, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Cam was strip-sacked on the two-yard line, the yeah. four-yard line, and they scored. They didn't have to go very far to score. Yeah. Okay, so we've established that this was not an aesthetically pleasing. Oh, all right, one more, one more. Denver finished with 194 yards of total offense, the fewest ever for a Super Bowl winner. So, Well, it's not their fault that their defense gave them <laughs> such field position and their punt return. That's true. Yeah. It's true. I mean, so the conversation around this game last night and going into today is, is it possible for a game where the offenses are so frustrated and play so poorly to be considered a great, a great game? It was not aesthetically pleasing. We don't consider games in which the defense outshines the offense to be aesthetically pleasing. And so it's thus classified as a horrible game, the worst, one of the worst Super Bowls, maybe the 11th worst. Mm-hmm. So, Mike, would you care to make an argument in defense of the Super Bowl as um, a product that one watches on television? Yes. I, I thought it was a very good game, as a matter of fact. I think that up until Carol, up until the strip sack that led to the uh, Denver only touchdown, Carolina could have scored a touchdown on that drive. Not inconceivable. They rally themselves late. They score a touchdown with five minutes left. And we're talking about this defensive battle that was eventually decided by a great offensive, one great offensive drive. And the problem is... When we, you know, when you add Keep up... Keep in mind that that's all a counterfactual history. None of that actually yeah, happened. I am writing a book of football. <laughs> uh, I am writing a book of sports what ifs, and you're both invited to uh, contribute. But how do we, how does one say, you know, this was just incompetent offense versus this was tremendous defense? And I think the way one says it, I don't think the Broncos could ever make the case of, oh, look at what our offense can do. They never showed that they could score three touchdowns in a game against uh, a legitimate defense with Peyton Manning at quarterback. But obviously, Carolina's a good offense. Look at what they've been doing in the postseason. And it doesn't seem that it's, you don't scratch your head and say it was inexplicable why they couldn't get anything going. 
And yeah, Cam sailed a couple passes. And yeah, his receivers had a couple drops. But my God, the pressure that the Broncos put on them all day. Talk about the blind side, Michael Orr. Keep keep the Sandra Bullock hagiography close to your heart because he had as bad a Super Bowl as anyone's mm-hmm. ever had. And the other thing I'd say is that it was uh, excellent. It was excellent uh, coaching out of Wade Phillips. It was excellent execution. And for all the truths we talk about sports and football, most of these truths get exploded over time. You know, you got to run the ball or great offense beats uh, off defense wins championships. You know, there are always exceptions. But so far, since I've been really paying a lot of attention, the one way to pull the shocking upset has always been to heavily pressure the other quarterback. I don't know. Maybe that sounds obvious. Maybe that sounds like a tautology. But it has been true that in Super Bowls that are supposedly shocking, the one thing that has always happened is the other quarterback has been pressured more than he is used to being pressured. And when you pressure the other quarterback, good things happen. And Denver did it. And tell me... Anything, if you say, all right, you're going into a a, a football game and you could have any unit of your team working well. And, you know, defensive pressure comes from the defensive backs and so forth. But I would say if I'm getting pressure on the other quarterback, that's what I want more than anything else. And this proved it out. Oh, and the the Carolina offensive line was completely dominated. And and that contributed to Cam Newton being ineffective. Uh, Pro Football Focus tweeted out, a fact that Newton on passes of 10 to 19 yards through the air, he was two for 15 for 51 yards in an interception. That's awful. Those are short passes. And Newton overthrew 10 passes, tying a record for the most in a Super Bowl. Jim Kelly, Stan Humphreys, uh, according to ESPN stats. So it really was this combination of Denver's incredible defense. Von Miller was ridiculous. Uh, DeMarcus Ware, the rest of the line and the linebackers put all pressure on him constantly. And Newton not playing well. So let me um, come to the defense of Michael Orr, who had a terrible game. But it was Mike Remmers, the right tackle, who gave up the sacks by Von Miller, the strip sacks that led to the two Denver touchdowns. So he was at least less terrible than the other tackle. Or maybe Von Miller was just better than Than DeMarcus Ware. Slightly better than DeMarcus Ware. So, yeah, I mean, the thing that was confusing was that there were a lot of stories going into this game about Michael Orr and how he'd solidified the line. And if you watched the NFC playoffs, the Carolina linemen weren't allowing any pressure. And we're going to talk to Jeff Schwartz coming up in a minute. Maybe he can help explain what happened. And maybe it was just that um, the Broncos linemen were just better than anything the Panthers faced. And a lot of times, you know, we don't think about the fact, you know, we think that results of these games are dispositive. It just means the Broncos defense was better and maybe Carolina was overrated. I think maybe the Panthers offensive line just had a bad game. Bad game. And the Denver linemen just played really well. And if they had, if the Panthers line had played as well as they had played earlier in the playoffs, then it would have been a different result. But the thing that was disappointing and the thing that I think argues for it being not a great defensive display or not, it, it obviously was, but not being something that was pleasing to watch is that you would like to think or hope that Cam Newton as this mobile quarterback, a guy who's not just mobile, but huge and really hard to bring down, that when pressured, that would actually allow him to show why he's great. It would allow him to escape the pre- a pressure that maybe 31 other quarterbacks in the league wouldn't be able to escape. And maybe that's expecting too much. And maybe that's just on us for thinking that 
you know, Newton could do something that's not possible to do. But he was the MVP of the league. He had one of the greatest seasons for a quarterback ever. And he just couldn't do anything. He was sailing passes. He did not escape. He, you know, on a couple runs outside the pocket, he gained like 40 or 50 yards. But he wasn't like running past Von Miller. It, it didn't seem like a great clash of like the best def- defensive end versus the best quarterback. It just seemed like Newton couldn't do anything. He had a bad game. Uh, had a game, bad play. game, bro. You just he had a bad game. You just uh, that was his entire post game press conference. Went there, bad game, bro. Right, well, played us, bro. Should we, should we pivot and talk about that? Yeah, let's listen to a clip from Cam Newton's post game presser. Ron said Denver two years ago had a tough time. They bounced back. Uh, did you take that to heart when you told the athletes? No. Can you put a finger on what uh, White Carolina did not play the way it normally plays? Got out play. Is there a reason why? Got out play, bro. Is there anything Denver did defensively that, I mean, I know you've seen them, studied them. Was it pretty much what you had seen on film? Was there anything different you think they put in for this game? Nothing different. Yeah, so of course the uh, jackals who descend on Cam Newton had a field day with this, and I give him a lot of slack for being a heartbroken athlete in his biggest moment. But when you are so exuberant, and we can think of examples of other athletes who are extremely exuberant, after the game, when everyone's going to turn to you, you can perhaps muster up a little bit of, if you want to call it maturity, sure, there's putting aside just your raw emotion, and you could be emotional, and you could show how upset you are, but you could talk a little bit at length. You know, if the world were rational, his terseness wouldn't be a sign of anything other than him having a bad press conference after a bad day. It will be taken as much more than that, but still, I do believe Cam deserves a little bit of criticism. I agree. Uh, I, I think part of the obligation, and obligation sounds like a dumb get off my lawn word, but part of the obligation that athletes do have, and most athletes appreciate, whether they like talking to the media or not, whether they want to answer or believe that the questions that many members of the press in these situations ask are absurd and unanswerable in many ways and are intended only to elicit a short three or four second response that can be used in an, in, in print or as a soundbite. Whether you hate all of that, and again, most athletes do with good reason, you still have to find a way. I mean, you're right, Mike. I think there's a way to show that you're emotional and upset without appearing standoffish, without looking like a dick and being unaware that what the way you're behaving is going to give the jackals the opportunity to criticize you. Yeah, this is a tough one for me because because I think it is weird and dumb how much we evaluate players based on how well they are able to say these platitudes in press conferences. And obviously, you know, that's not why we like these athletes. It's not why we care about them. We're not like rooting for them because these are the best people in the world at being able to talk after the game. We want to see them during the game. But it just does seem like even if you're thinking of it from a pure marketing perspective from his his end, it's just like not a very smart thing to do. It's just going to give the ones most likely to criticize him for reasons totally 
external to his mm-hmm. play. It's just going to give them ammunition. Yeah. And not even marketing, not even like uh, that he signs another yogurt contract, just in terms of what he wants to achieve as an athlete. It just hangs a little bit more of a cloud over him. If he was great in the press conference, it wouldn't make everything go away. But this is another thing coming into next season, another quasi little headache. And he probably says, oh, I can't win no matter what I do. But this, you know, puts him a, a half a step backwards. It diminishes him a little bit is what it does. And I think we need to acknowledge how how hard that situation is. And the way it was set up, it looks like, made it even harder for the players on the Panthers who had to go stand, sit at that podium. Um, you could hear background noise, and Barry Pacheski, uh points this out in a piece on Deadspin this morning, that... There was another press conference going on right behind the curtain, and yeah. it involved Broncos cornerback Chris Harris, who was basically talking shit about how about how effectively they had shut down Cam Newton. That could not be easy to hear. Barry Pacheski again, giving Mr. Pacheski a lot of credit. He noted after the game that Tim Tebow could have won that game for the Broncos, which I think is very true. I don't really see or understand how this game will change anything about how we view Peyton Manning. It is remarkable that he managed to win a Super Bowl given the way that he was able to play this year and kind of the path that he took back into the starting role after missing a bunch of games and being featured in the Al Jazeera HGH documentary. So it just feels to me more like a curiosity and a footnote at the end of the, his career, sort of like that uh, Cam Newton press conference. Hey, it makes him feels look like a little a, better, right? He's got two mm-hmm. Super Bowl wins. It does make him look a little better, but in terms of like what is it? Because so much of the make him so much of the critique so much of the critique of Peyton has been his lack of Super Bowls and his inability to win in the playoffs. And what I think this does more than anything else is just point up how um, foolish that critique is. Because he didn't play well this entire playoffs, and and I don't think anyone who actually like looks at the box scores or had watched the games is going to feel like you know he should deserve much credit at all for for this. And yet. You know, Narratively, years, it's, it's awesome. Be, yeah, right. Two Super Bowls. Yeah. Although Narratively if you, awesome. If you look at the scope of his career and you say how many he, – he did have – for a while, I tried to make excuses for Peyton and say that a lot of his postseason losses, he performed well, but you know his defense let him down or the other team had a great last second drive. This is true of Tom Brady, by the way. Oh, you lost those Super Bowls. He always would have these last uh, – half or last quarter go-ahead touchdowns, and then a guy like Eli Manning would get the last shot and put it in the end zone. Anyway, Peyton does deserve, you want to call it criticism, he has had several bad postseasons, but if you add up all the really good postseasons that could have won a Super Bowl, he definitely deserves to have won two Super Bowls, just not this one, but that's okay. (laughs) It makes up for a different one. And should he retire? I would say if you're a jewel thief and you stole a ring, get out of the store. That's what I would say. (laughs) So... I um, was feeling a little haggard this morning, post-Super Bowl. Looking a little haggard. You look great. Well, thank you. You know I look great. You look better than Dan Haggerty. (laughs) I shaved with my Harry's razor this morning. It just gave me that post-Super Bowl glow that you you just can't get naturally from the 11th worst Super Bowl of all time. (laughs) Did you get a nice shave this morning, Pesca? I chose not to shave. uh, But when I do shave, it will be with Harry's. (laughs) <laughs> the, after Super Bowl 51, you can guarantee you will shave with Harry's. They're German-engineered five-blade cartridges, sort of like um, the Von Miller of cartridges. I was trying to think of a player who did well. It's not the Cam Newton of cartridges, nor, nor the Peyton Manning. CJ Anderson. Shave. 
No cuts or burn. It's quality guaranteed and a full refund if you're not happy. They're factory direct prices, so you can cut out the middleman. It ships right to your door. And Harry's sells their blades at half the price of the leading brand. Over a million people have already made the switch. So why pay $32 for an eight-pack of blades when you can get them for half the price at harrys.com? The Harry starter set is an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor, moisturizing, shave cream, and three razor blades. Harry's will give you $5 off. It's a special offer for our listeners. $5 off your first order with promo code HANGUP. Stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code HANGUP at checkout. All right. Joining us now is uh, Jeff Schwartz. He was drafted by the Carolina Panthers and played with them for a couple seasons. Uh, he's an offensive lineman. He played this past year for the New York Giants, broke his left leg. He is now rehabbing. He is joining us post-rehab. Jeff, how are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm good. Thanks for having me on today. Sure. And you are one of the best um, people online. I enjoy following you on Twitter about a- analyzing offensive line play which doesn't get enough uh, scrutiny from the casual fan and was really the deciding factor in the Super Bowl. And so we are giving the line play the scrutiny that it deserves. The thing that really interested me was um, the Panthers line had played so well throughout the playoffs, um, had allowed Cam Newton to just stay in the pocket, you know, display his MVP form. And then in the Super Bowl, it just seemed like it all really broke down. And so I'd be curious for your thoughts on whether that was more about the Denver defense or whether the um, Carolina line just had a bad game? Well, it's interesting. There actually is a lot of scrutiny on offensive line play on Twitter. It's just awfully wrong. So that's why I decided to tweet <laughs> so much about it. I think that uh, the Carolina Panthers offensive line, I agree. They, they were playing really well up until this point. And a couple of things. One is they're an offensive line that's built to run the ball and to protect Cam in a play-action type of sense where they can sell run a lot more and they're not just straight drop-back passing. And when you stop their running game like Denver did, uh, you got into a mode where you had to drop-back pass. And that's not, uh, you know, Remmers at right tackle or, or, or left tackle. That's not their strong suit. Uh, they're best when the defensive line is beat up from protecting against the run. They think they're going to run the ball. There's a threat of Cam Newton. And uh, there just wasn't. And Carolina's not built for kind of a short intermediate passing game, which is what you would try to do against Denver. Uh, you try to get the ball out quickly, try to get the ball into playmakers' hands, and try to get them to break tackles, which, uh, you know, Carolina really is not set up for that at all. Yeah, we had mentioned a stat earlier that, that Newton was uh, two for 15 on intermediate passes. And it's interesting to hear you attribute the 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 part of the blame for that to the lack of, of protection and the way that they're built to, to operate. Um where did you see the breakdown occurring? How much of it is it that someone like Von Miller just creates, has so much speed and agility that he has an offensive lineman on his heels from the get-go? Or does that evolve over the course of the game? What did you see happening last night? Um, you know, I think Von Miller is that good. He has not been stopped much this season. Uh, I'll give a plug to my brother, who's the free agent right tackle for the Browns. He played him this season, and he did the best job against Von Miller. Um, that anyone had done all season. So, you know, you, he can stop him, but it's very tough. And Carolina just looked like there was a mismatch. And that's what it comes down to a lot of times is one-on-one battles. Uh, you know, everyone complains that Carolina didn't, you know, didn't ship enough or didn't do this, didn't do that. But, you know, all of Von Miller's big production was just he beat the right tackle. Uh, one time I think Cam held the ball a little bit long. 
And, you know, when you rush the passer, it's a combination of, of one-on-one battles, but also the secondary. And the Broncos secondary did a great job neutralizing Greg Olson and making uh, enough uh, plays to where Cam couldn't get the ball off on time. And, and it really affected the pass protection. It didn't seem that the Panthers adjusted much. Again, I'm maybe one of these ignorant guys on lineman Twitter that you know about, but it did seem like they were beating them and beating them the same way, and I didn't see a whole bunch of, all right, now they're keeping a guy in to chip. Now they're keeping the back in to help the tackles. They just kept doing the thing that wasn't working, but what do you say? Well, they did, and... Part of the reason why is they have a number one offense. So why change what they've been doing? I have, you know, a, I have a reason why. <laughs> I have a reason why. And, did you watch the game? And, they were getting and, killed. What? I said, I have a reason why. Because they were getting killed during the game. That's why. No, yeah. I, I understand. But you understand is that coaching staffs in general are arrogant, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they want to do the best they can. They want to do it their way. And Carolina had number one offense coming in this game. I figure at some point they, they thought, okay, it's just going to start clicking. And, you know, to the point of, of helping tackles, some offenses are built to do that and some aren't. So if you have, let's say, our offense, for example, in New York, we have a lot of built-in chips, and the passing game is built off of that because, you know, everyone has their job to open up the passing game. So if your offense doesn't have a lot of that in there, then to just do it in the middle of a game really throws off your timing. Um, so it's hard just to say, well, just chip everybody because it doesn't really work that way. And at some point, the offensive linemen just have to win their one-on-one battles. Um, and it's only chips so much. Yeah. So should Carolina have, have put in the game plan more chips? I mean, I guess, but you know, it didn't, it didn't matter at some points, even when they blocked him up, Denver still got to Cam Noon or Denver just, just, um, you know, smothered the wide receivers. So it's tough for me to say they should have changed their game plan. They have the number one offense. Uh, they had played some good defenses this year and put up, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of points. So, I don't know. I'm kind of um, bullish on the idea of, of changing your offense just, you know, for one game or one pass rusher. Yeah, I get it. The analogy that whenever a mobile quarterback gets loose, uh, the semi-ignorant people say, put a spy on him. Whenever defensive <laughs> players get pressure, the ignorant guy like me says, chip him. I understand. Well, the, the spy thing is interesting. I feel the same way about the spy thing. You know, Denver did it early on. Actually, the first third down, they had Von Miller spy. And that was it. That was the last time they did that. And, and um, you know, I just think that you, it's hard to change your entire scheme off of one player. You know, you can rush differently up front to, to not allow Cam Newton to scramble. But to just say, we're going to take a, a, our best player, our most athletic player, and just decide to not let him do his job um, seems rather ridiculous. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on kind of the psychology of playing tackle in a game like this, because there are some positions that you can play in a football game where if you don't do your job, it's not really apparent to the casual fan. Like if there's a coverage screw up in the secondary, maybe it's the corner's fault, maybe it's the safety's fault. But with Mike Rimmers, everybody who was watching that game knew that he was getting beaten by Von Miller. Um, There's no hiding it. He acknowledged it after the game that he felt terrible and that he had a really bad game. What does it feel like? I mean, I assume that this has never actually happened to you, but from talking to maybe your brother or some no, friends I, of yours in the, in the NFL. No, but what, is, what does that feel like to just know that you're getting beaten and that that's really the reason that your team is losing the game? You know, it, it's tough. It's kind of what we sign up for as offensive linemen. I mean, you know that 
the good is never going to be projected. The bad's only what people are going to see, and you're okay with that. Um, but when you when you have a bad game, you just have to I don't know just suck it up. I mean, I've had games where I've given up a couple sacks, and and you feel really bad, and you just can't wait to get out to the practice field and get ready for the next game. Unfortunately, there is no next game, you know, for him. Um, he's going to have to put it behind him. And I, I met with Mike a couple times. That um, he's a good he's a good guy, and and he's, he's you know kind of lighthearted. And, and um, I hope that he can. You know, get over this. I hope the Panthers fans don't blame them too hard. You know, it used to be easier when there wasn't social media. You know, you just play bad. That you know, a newspaper writes about it. They might talk about it on local news for a few days. That's the end you hear of it. And now with social media, you know, you just get hammered for months. So I hope he can try to stay off of it and, and just you know get his mind right and get ready. You know, to train for the off season and put it behind him. And I think the other thing, Jeff, that fans don't really appreciate is. That offensive linemen, there is something different about them. I mean, there is an intellect required to play the position um, that requires a lot more knowledge of play schemes, a lot more knowledge of playbook study. I mean, it's not as brute force as I think a lot of fans probably think. Um, and in a game like this, where it felt like Von Miller is just athletically abusing somebody, I don't think most fans are going to realize the sort of technique and adjustments and attempts to adjust that Carolina was trying to implement, no doubt. Yeah, you know, I said this earlier, a lot of it's just, he's, he's got beat. I mean, you know, you can, you can only do so much against guys like that. Uh, you have to just continue to take your good sets, continue to get your hands, hope the quarterback gets rid of the ball. I mean, it's, it's a collective process. It's not just the right tackle getting beat. It's also... You know, Cam getting rid of the ball, Cam stepping up. Um, you know, are they going to chip? Does he, does he fear the run at all? I mean, there's all these factors that go into pass protection. And, you know, you're right about the, in, the intellect. I often tell people that, you know, the, the, the Hall of Fame guys, you know, John Ogden, Orlando Pace, Joe Thomas, those guys, they're just better, right? I mean, they're just better than us. And, and <laughs> that's okay with me. But the rest of us, there's not much talent difference between someone who's playing and not playing. Yeah. A lot of it comes down to the intellect, uh, how you prepare. Uh, you know, I'm not the best athlete out there. There's far better athletes. There's far better guys that are stronger. But, you know, I, I prepare well. I know what I'm doing. I, I can read defenses. And, and that plays a big role in it. And a lot of what happened yesterday, just he just got beat. I mean, you know, he, he just, just got beat. So I, I appreciate the idea of you're a great offense, you play your offense, and maybe it's hard to make in-game adjustments. But when you see what the Broncos did to good tackles uh, with the Patriots, and then when you see what they did to the number one offense, should, I don't know, when's the schedule out? Anyway, the Giants play the Broncos, let's say, next year, and Ware and uh, Miller are doing their things. Are you saying the game plan doesn't get much different from what it usually is what how much can it possibly change when you have a really distinctive not just good not just better than everyone but a duo that puts great teams in a position where you just can't execute an offense how much can the how much do you think the game plan will change if you draw the broncos on your schedule you know we have built-in chips in our offense like that's part of our staple offense so it wouldn't be that much to put them in but the way you neutralize a good pass rush is you get the ball out as quick as you can. And I know that that's what New England tried to do, but their offensive line couldn't hold up. And, you know, our offensive line 
I think is, is solid to, uh, you know, above average. So, you know, we played some great defensive lines this year. We played Buffalo, we played the Panthers and Eli Manning stayed upright. You know, that's kind of what you have to do. You just have to, to, to get the ball out quickly, throw a couple chips in there. I mean, our offense would, I think, fare a little better because we have those built in. Um, but I see guys, you know, they're going to be ready for, for the duo. Uh, they now know what they can do and, and it'll be interesting to see if teams do change their game plan going forward. I, I want to ask one other question. Do you see, we talk about how great Wade Phillips was, but of course Ware and Miller are so fantastic. Were there things that were uh, the game plan as opposed to these two excellent pass rushers pinning their ears back and going for the quarterback? Were there subtleties and nuances that you looked at and say, that's kind of brilliant? Yeah, they did a couple things. Uh, one I noticed is that the Panthers often um, max protect or slide really hard to the left uh, to help out Michael Orr, and then they kind of send Greg Olson and Tolbert to the right. And whenever that happened, DeMarcus Ware, who's over Orr most of the game, would wrap inside, and no one would block him. It happened many times where Ware would wrap inside and rush up the middle, and, and Cam would would just be standing there because he expected, you know, the blind side to be protected and he could see that, or, I mean, excuse me, that Tolbert and Stewart and Remmers had the right side. So he's not even, he's not even thinking where's coming, coming there. And the way that it, it ends up happening, the right guard is taken up and then Khalil's taken up and no one is there to block where. And, you know, Cam often escapes to his right because that's obviously where, where he sees most often. So it makes sense to rush like that and, and where got to Cam a bunch. And that's just a game plan thing. That's just what they saw in film and the way they were going to attack him. And and then also when he did that, Malik Jackson would kind of, kind of contain, contain rush to make sure that if Cam did get outside, he was there. So it was a pretty good scheme. When you watch a game on television like you uh, did on Sunday, Jeff, do you feel like uh, the announcers, whether it's on CBS or elsewhere, really understand what's going on in the line, or do they not even talk about it enough for you to tell if they understand it? You know, there are guys that do a good job of it. Most of them tend to be forward linemen. You know, it's tough to talk about offensive line play or line play in general every single play. I think it would, you know, maybe bore the fans. Uh, but it's easy to just say, oh, the offensive line is playing bad. I mean, it's much easier than to break it down every play. There's not, you know, it's almost not enough time. But, you know, there's guys like, you know, I really enjoyed David Deal, who used to play for the Giants. He works a lot of games, and I've listened to him a bunch. And, you know, he does a good job of protecting the offensive linemen when things go wrong. You know, it's not always, it's not always our fault. I mean, there's a lot of times we do mess up. But like I said, in pass protection, there's a lot of things that happen more than just winning your one-on-one matchup. So I think it's tough for for guys in, in the booth to always be correct about offensive line play. And just in general, I mean, there's a lot going on. And, you know, sometimes, you know, things are said that just make no sense because they're just trying to fill space. Um, well, Jeff, you did not just fill space. I feel like okay. I understand what happened better in the game. I hope your rehab is going well. And uh, that That's great. You will... Yeah, and that you will be playing uh, in the Super Bowl next year and playing uh, perhaps better than the Carolina Panthers offensive line did. Thank you. 
Can we also give tribute to, uh, on Wikipedia, this was actually about your brother, but, uh, well, first of all, Wikipedia quotes NFL.com saying that you are a naturally strong mountain of a man, which I always wanted my Wikipedia page to say, <laughs> but then it links to an article <laughs> with this headline. Now, now, to be clear, this was in the Cleveland Jewish News. It would be weird if we're in the Plain Dealer, but here's the headline. Browns tackle line problems with a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> I have not. Not just any Jew. So, with it, you got. If you um, have a line problem, there's only one way to tackle them: with a Jew. Well, there'd, there'd be there'd be a um, there'd be many holes to fill if there's uh, if they try to do it all Jews. You got the two Schwartzes, <laughs> the ghost of Harris Martin, and and. <laughs> That's probably it, right now. Oh, one in Tampa, Ali Marpet, Jew. Oh, Ali Marpet, Jew, not a Jew. He's a Jew. Yeah, Jew. Excellent. Three, three of us. We only seven away from a minion. <laughs> Mazel right, Jeff, Thank you. Thank you. Mazel tov. Exactly. No problem. Take care, guys. On Saturday at the city of Manchester Stadium, the Leicester City Foxes beat Manchester City, the 2012 and 2014 Premier League champions, by a score of 3-1. to one. That victory gives those fabulous Foxes 15 wins, two losses, and eight draws on the season for a total of 53 points. That leaves them five clear of Tottenham and Arsenal with 13 to play. This is not expected. Uh, Leicester's Odds before the season to win the Premier League were 5,000 to 1. The club only returned to the Premier League in 2014 after a decade in the lower tiers of English soccer. Leicester had to win six of eight last year to avoid being relegated again. In a league where payroll is usually destiny, Leicester's wage bill places them 17th out of 20 teams. Compare that to Chelsea, which has a wage bill of over 200 million pounds compared to Leicester's 48 million. Chelsea's in 13th place. Joining us now from Leicester is the beat reporter for the Leicester Mercury, Rob Tanner, who noted over the weekend that the team has won 22 of 34 since Richard III was reburied in Leicester <laughs> Cathedral last March. And that's really as good an explanation of any uh, as what's going on with Leicester City. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. So I am guessing that you did not expect to be the beat writer for the team that's at the top of the English Premier League this year? Absolutely not. I mean, a year ago, they were bottom of the table and looking odds on to go straight back down to the championship, you know, and uh, here we are 12 months on and we're talking about possible title contenders. This should not be happening in English football. It, it hasn't happened before for a very, very long time to see a side that's so unfancied uh, break apart the uh, the established elite of, uh, of English football. So uh, I think everybody's just enjoying it and reveling in this in this wonderful moment. So the game against Man City, I watched um, the second half, and Manchester City had possession, um, and yet they were not in control of the game. Um, Leicester City, it seems like, plays a more counterattacking style, one where they let the richer, fancier clubs hold on to the ball, and yet they still managed to beat them in the end. Do you think that this is a style of play issue that Leicester plays in a way that the other clubs are just not able to deal with for some reason. Absolutely. I mean, there used to be an old saying in English football that possession was king, but it, I think Leicester City are proving that that's not the case now. They they definitely set up to um, to bring teams onto them and then try and break quickly uh, on the break and, and catch them out when they're out of position. And uh, it's a, a tactic that Claudio Ranieri's brought in. Uh, it's been proving very, very effective so far. I mean, he's been very intelligent uh, with that because he's identified that one of the strengths of, um, of, of the Leicester squad is there's a lot of pace in there. A lot of players who are very quick on the counter-attack. And uh, he's, he's bringing the best out of them at the moment. And the player that 
is considered the best on the counterattack with the pace is Jamie Vardy, and he's become this fantastic story in English football. Four years ago, this guy was playing in the fifth tier of English soccer. Um, he was yeah. cut from the – when he was a teenager, he was cut from the, the, the youth program at Sheffield Wednesday. And he was working in like a carbon factory or something a few years ago, um, making very little wage, working for – playing for a semi-pro team. And his rise has been meteoric uh, and kind of crazy. He scored in 11 consecutive Premier League matches earlier this season. He had a goal a week ago that was just remarkable of a volley from, what, 20 or 30 meters out. Um, where did Vardy come from and how has he maintained this pace and this skill? He's on the English national team now, right? Well, you're absolutely right to point out that story. I mean, it is Hollywood stuff, and I believe there is a plans to make a movie about his rise. Um, yeah, he was, as you said, he was um, cut by Sheffield Wednesday, um, the team he grew up supporting as a lad, and actually gave up football for a couple of years, and it was his friends that got him back playing local parks football, and he just slowly progressed from that, um, working his way through the non-league pyramid up to Fleetwood Town in the conference. Uh, several teams had a look at him whilst he was there, because he was uh, scoring lots and lots of goals at Fleetwood, and uh, but Leicester decided to uh, take the punt on him, so to speak. Um, paying a £1 million for him, which is a, a record for a player out in the non-league, it was seen as a gamble, and it looked at the, in the first season at Leicester that uh, the gamble wouldn't pay off, because he really struggled to um, make the step up to the championship level, and uh, he even confessed to himself that uh, to us and, and to the club that he thought he might this might be too much for him, but uh, clubs kept faith with him, and uh, lo and behold, he scored a load of goals as they won the title to win promotion to the Premier League, and having had a good look at the Premier League last season, now he's taken the Premier League by storm. And as you say as well, he's now an England international. We fully expect him to be uh, going to the European Championships in the summer. Okay, so that gets to there are commonalities when teams outperform expectations. And one of them is you have an asset, a player, or maybe two players who are so much better than the perception of them was. I'm thinking of an American basketball, Gordon Hayward, when he was on the uh, Butler Bulldogs. Oh, how's Butler doing it? Well, it turns out Hayward was one of the best players uh, in college basketball that year. No one knew it. Other commonalities in, across all sports are a brilliant coach and a team that's really coherent. So somehow, sometimes the uh, collective can make up for paucity of talent uh, among individuals. And sometimes that this also means that the players are really used to playing with each other, that they aren't just mismatched uh, assemblage of parts. Are, are any of that true with Lester? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, I, mean I know Mares and, and Vardy are the ones that are grabbing all the headlines now, but it's very much been a, a team effort so far. I mean, if you look at the Leicester City um, team and how much they cost, I mean, that team that took on Man City on Saturday was put together for £22 million compared to uh, 220 that uh, the Man City team has put together. Uh, this players to the point fees. to prove they've been released by clubs in the past and they're hungry to succeed and show that they can compete at this level. Uh, your likes of Mark Brighton, who was uh, released by his hometown club of Aston Villa, Danny Simpson, uh, sold by QPR. Christian Fuchs, a free transfer from Schalke. You know, these, all these players um, have got, felt like they've got something to prove. And the team ethic, the spirit and the camaraderie has really been the secret to Leicester City's success. I've never seen a bunch of players so close. Normally, you might get one or two that are a bit alone, um, go off on their own. You're not really involved in the clique. Uh, whereas this group, they just go everywhere together. I mean, at Christmas, they went and had their Christmas party in Copenhagen, walked around Copenhagen dressed as superheroes and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and that, all of them were there. And, um, you know, so that, that has been a real secret to, to their success so far this season. So I was 
emailing back and forth with a friend of mine who's English and is a, a big uh, Premier League fan. And he was telling me that kind of the story that he saw in that game over the weekend is that Man City used to be the team of local Manchester, this team that was as compared to Manchester United, which was this globalized rich man's plaything that Man City was like the real working man's team. And now, you know, like every other Premier League team, almost, it's, you know, financed by billionaires and they bring in players from all over the world. And it's, you know, all this oil money and etc. But Leicester does actually still seem like it's this one holdout of actual old time English local football. And so is my perception of that true? And just how, what is the connection of the community and the club and how are people reacting to this season? Oh, well, Leicester City are owned by a billionaire as well from Thailand, but um, there is still a community yeah. feel about Leicester. Uh, I mean, there's only one club in the whole county. It's quite a big county, quite a rural county, and y- y- everybody supports Leicester City in the county. You know, you might see the odd fan with a Man United shirt or a Liverpool shirt, but they'll always ask and talk about Leicester City. So um, the focus of the whole community is on the football club, and when the football club is performing like they are at the moment, it gives everybody a lift. It gives them a sense of identity as well, because people don't know where Leicester is outside of England you know a lot of people don't know it a lot of I mean I've done a lot of interviews with uh, overseas journalists and you know a lot, lot of them just want to know about Leicester because they don't know anything about the place I mean as far as they're concerned Richard III is the only real vocal point of, uh, of, of conversations about the, 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 the city but um, the football club is very much at the heart of it and uh, they've, it's a big sporting county as well because we've got um, a top rugby union team called the Tigers as well and one of the best uh, basketball teams in the country the Riders uh, based in Leicester as well so you know they really love their sport here, but when the football team are performing and uh, achieving what they're achieving at the moment, it, it, you can, everybody's just walking around with smiles on their faces. But here's my last question. It's that 5,000 to 1 odds uh, stat. There are only 20 teams in the Premier League. It would seem that making odds of 5,000 to 1 is a little foolish for whoever offered the, the 5,000 to 1 odds. Is there, do we know, have we confirmed that there are people who've taken the bet and what are the odds now? Like, can they sell their 5,000 to 1 ticket for 1,000, 2,000 now? Well, we've actually found one. The newspaper have been out to uh, interview uh, one such fan that put £10 on at 5,000 to 1 at the start of the season. And, uh, you know, he's got a couple of other bets as well. I think he's in line to, if they win the title, to um, win over £100,000. So uh, we went out to interview him today. Uh, so there are people who've taken a punt on their team. They believe in their team, no matter what the odds, because, uh, as I said, uh, we've become accustomed in, in this country with only four or five teams competing for the title. And even that's more competitive than a lot of the other leagues in Europe where... The Bundesliga only buying by Munich team to win the title. Paris Saint-Germain in France, you know, it, the Premier League still has that competitive edge. But you know, nobody has really challenged that established elite before uh, until now. And this is paving a way for other clubs to uh, uh, to aspire to as well. I mean, it shows that you can compete with these big boys who are spending millions and millions. You know, and uh, clubs like Stoke City, Crystal Palace, Watford, perhaps along down the, the line, they they might harbour. Um, ambitions of uh, competing in the top six and, and possibly even going for the title like Leicester are. It seems like a, a turning point that is not getting mentioned in most of the stories about Leicester City's rise this season occurred last year when the manager, Nigel Pearson, was fired after his son and two other players were uh, caught themselves on film having an orgy with a Thai prostitute or prostitutes. Um 
has that just been forgotten mm-hmm. now in Leicester? Or was it actually, you know, it brought in a new manager, got rid of these three young players off the club. It seems like it must have changed something in the environment around this team and allowed it to, to do what it's doing. Well, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of euphoria at the end of last season, obviously pulling off the greatest of great escapes and everybody was planning for the new campaign with Pearson in charge and hopefully mounting another uh, successful um, battle against relegation just to stay in the Premier League. That was the, the perception. And then obviously that all broke and that led to the departure of Nigel Pearson and uh, and several of the players, plus the um, the decision of Esteban Cambiasso not to re-sign. He was Leicester's best player last season. And, um, you know, there was uh, certainly a few people who were uh, apprehensive about the upcoming season, but um, uh, the players have just carried on the momentum from last season. Claudio Ranieri, there was a lot of um, sort of doubters about his appointment, but um, it's been proven to be a masterstroke to, to get the experienced Italian in, and the players have responded to him. And I don't think people really talk about what took on took place in, in Thailand in the summer. Now, really, they've all moved on. All those people have, uh, have uh, no longer with the club, and uh, the, the club are looking at brighter things now. Got- well, what about what about Vardy though? He was caught on tape at a casino, like racially abusing a Japanese person. He's still on the club and are, are people just willing and happy to forgive him because he scores lots of goals? No, there was a bit of a, a, a furore about that as well. And he was um, punished by the club. He was ordered to uh, undergo some sort of, um, well, counselling about how he, uh, he deals with people from other cultures. He's a very working class lad from Sheffield. And sometimes he does he, he's, his mouth moves faster than his, his brain. Uh, he's a nice lad, really. But uh, that was a, an unfortunate moment. And hopefully he's learned his lesson from that. Uh, but ultimately in football... If you perform on the pitch, then people sort of forgive you for your misdemeanors off it. Oh, yeah, we're familiar with that in, in the United States. Yeah. I've got a couple of very important questions to ask you to wrap things up here. Um, the club's mascot is Filbert Fox, and there are secondary characters, Vicky Vixen and Cousin Dennis. Can you tell us about them? And why is When You're Smiling the team song? Well, when, while you, when You're Smiling was um, adopted was many years ago now, and I have no idea why, and everybody I've ever asked has no idea why either. It's just one of those things that it just happened, and uh, the, the, the fans embraced it. Uh, but in terms of the mascots, yeah, we've had mascots over here in uh, English football for a while now, and uh, they brighten up the place. The kids love them. They're always around the stadium before the game, outside meeting and greeting people, and then obviously during the game to try and get the crowd going. And uh, no, they, they are great. Cousin Dennis, though? Why cut? Why Cousin Dennis. Cousin Dennis? <laughs> Again, I don't know. He's a nice lad. They come up with these things. I don't know who sits in the room. Cousin Dennis could be a little creepy if you ask me. Yeah. I'd beware I mean, of Cousin I, I Dennis. I always leave Filbert around. Filbert's always ev- everywhere, Filbert. Uh, and obviously he's named after the former ground. But um, yeah, it, it, they are colourful characters. All right, 13 uh, matches to go. I think they're playing Arsenal this coming weekend. Uh, Rob, do you think they're going to win the league? Well, I see if they come through the, the Arsenal game, they get something from from the Emirates then you know they're in a great position I mean I've, I'm one of the many that didn't think they would ever get this far you know we've all been expecting the wheels to fall off at some stage the bubble to burst but it hasn't they just keep going on and every time there's questions asked of them they respond uh, with all the right answers and uh, so they go to Arsenal full of confidence not fearing anybody and I think that's a big factor this season they've had great belief in themselves and they've shown no fear when they've taken on the big boys and uh, so if they can get a result there, then they're in a great position to kick on because the run of fixtures after that aren't too bad until the last three of the season when they have to go to Man United, home to Everton and then away to Chelsea on the final day of the season. So if they're uh, still got a, a cushion of five or six points going into those last three games, the title could be theirs. Yeah, if that game away to Chelsea in the last 
fixture of the years for the title, that could le- legitimately be one of the great s- sports moments of like our lifetimes. Yeah, it'd be amazing. It would be amazing if City were in a position that they could win the title at Stamford Bridge because you go into the last day of the season, a game at Stamford Bridge, and you're expecting it to be Chelsea that's challenging for the title, not Leicester right. City. So, uh, and also, it's, it would possibly be John Terry's last game for Chelsea as well. So it'd be quite an occasion that day. So hopefully, fingers crossed, everything goes well between now and then and we go down to Stamford Bridge with that on the line. It'd be amazing. All right, Rob Tanner of the Leicester Mercury um, thanks so much for joining us, and say hi to Cousin Dennis. Okay, will do. Thank you. <clears throat> now it is time for After Balls, and as discussed in the previous segment, the uh, Leicester City Foxes, they're owned by Thai billionaires. Um, the shirt sponsor is King Power, which is Thailand's leading travel retail group. They were the uh, 2011 winner at the Frontier Awards. I I probably don't even need to be saying this, but just for the few listeners that were not paying attention to the 2011 Frontier Awards, King Power won for Best Airport Retailer of the Year. Hmm. Tough competition. They really got it locked down in the the tie. It's uh, like the Academy Awards. They expanded the field. There were like 10 nominees this year (laughs) instead of five. However many there were, King Power won in 2011. Uh, Mike Pesca, what is your King Power? I do have to say that given the relatively cheap value of the tie bot, a billionaire would only be a 280 millionaire in American. I don't know how they, how they calculate their billionaires in Thailand. Maybe that's why Lester City's uh, wage bill is so low. They, right. Of course, pounds this guy are worth way more, more money than, than he did. Oh, yeah. If you convert it to pounds, it's probably worth only like $240 million. We're talking And maybe they're sub-trump. paying the players in bot. <laughs> maybe they're playing him in Sing, Sing Ha beer. Um, this after ball comes from me telling the fellas – during a break in the action, how I watched the Super Bowl. So I'll just tell you. So I put a lot of time and effort into my Super Bowl party. I covered six Super Bowls uh, in a row. And then last year, my first uh, Super Bowl as a civilian, I decided to host a party and it went really well. Uh, part of this is that my girlfriend cooks for, you know, two, two, three days, <laughs> overcooks. We, we make so much stuff, worry if we should triple the recipe, and then it turns out people love this stuff, but I don't know. They don't go crazy. So, But what I did about watching the game, as you know, I'm a cord cutter. So a game on CBS is really good. Now, the CBS antenna faces west, and I have two TVs in my apartment. One abuts the window. That gets CBS really easily. But the other one, I do not have an antenna that gets CBS. It's no problem because this is going to be the first Super Bowl on apps, they tell me. But I don't take their word for it. The app that they they say it's going to be on apps, but not on a mobile device, which I am supposed to know means a phone, but not an iPad. Does everyone know this? Everyone knows that mobile doesn't mean iPad. I kind of know it. I figured out by context that this is what they mean. So I go, though I have banned iPads from my house, I go and acquire an iPad. We go to the CBS <laughs> site. It says something along the lines of, Uh, It'll be streaming on NFL.com and CBS, and they kind of give credit to NFL. I'm like, maybe I have to download the NFL thing. So I get the NFL app, and there's I Chromecast it, which means it detects the iPad, not a mobile device, an iPad. It's not immobile, the iPad, right? It's not a mainframe iPad. It seems like it's mobile, but for their purposes, not a mobile device. There's a little icon, and if you click it, it will uh, transmit to your TV. I do this 
sometimes and it works. I do it with the NFL Network and it seems like it's going to work. This is day of the game. We're doing a lot of cooking. But, you know, I check in. It's streaming. But a weird thing is happening. The NFL Network pregame show or whatever, NFL.com, they're doing this pregame show and the stadium is empty. Whereas on CBS, which I'm watching because my other TV abuts the window, the the stadium's, you know, a third full, a cl- closing it on half full. And there's still no one on the on the NFL.com site. So I check it out and it turns out they're just on a loop where Dave Damashek is talking about hot dogs every 20 minutes on the NFL <laughs> site. So now I'm a little concerned because it's around 5.30. Can, can I interrupt here for yeah. a second? Is this like the scene in uh, Speed where Keanu Reeves r- rigs up the camera so that Dennis Hopper doesn't know that exactly. they've uh, evacuated from the bus? <laughs> exactly. It's on It's on a loop. And uh, Sandra Bullock, which who also played a role in this Super Bowl, though not as a heroic role because she gave rise to Michael Orr. And for some reason, they put him at left tackle. Anyway, uh, I, I kind of get the sense that the NFL app is not the way to go. So I check it back in on the CBS app and I could get it really, really great on my iPad which is not a mobile device, but is not nearly as big a device as my pretty large TV, which is supposed to show itself to 20 people I have coming over. So I realize, or I think I realize, that the reason that it's not Chromecasting is because I don't have iOS 9 loaded up. So I try (laughs) to load up the iOS 9, and it tells me it's going to take an hour, four minutes. Now, this is at 6.05. I don't have an hour, This is a dispatch from the future. Yeah. So I find a local hardware store that has 12 (laughs) feet antenna cables, and I buy, I run out. It's on, uh, it's on 80, I want to give a plug to Wanakers. It's on 3rd Avenue and 86th. So I live two avenues and a bunch of blocks over. But I run up, I buy three segments of cable. I buy a couple connectors. I come back down. It's already three nothing. People who have assembled are watching on the smaller TV. Although really most of the fans there cared about the halftime show. My friend uh, Israel and I jerry rig this. I hope that's not horribly offensive. Uh, we, we put the three 12 foot cords. We stick the antenna in the window and via the old cord and antenna connection, we get perfect crystal clear quality and the app can go fuck itself (laughs) (laughs) let's just be clear you invited people over to your apartment without really having them a way of showing them the super bowl and no one was pissed off because they're really there for the sliders and the halftime show and a quarter into it the super bowl was coming in in crystal clear clarity you really saved people from having to watch 25 percent of the super bowl you're a hero (laughs) that's right Uh, Stefan, what is your king power? Over the weekend, columnists Bruce Arthur in the Toronto Star and Sally Jenkins in the Washington Post wrote about NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell's obfuscating, dissembling, misdirecting, double-talking annual Super Bowl news conference. Goodell is not, despite what Bill Simmons said, exactly a liar. The NFL PR machine, like the tobacco and asbestos and climate change PR machines before it, is too careful for that. Rather... What Roger Goodell is, is a bullshitter. As retired Princeton philosophy professor Harry Frankfurt writes in his 2005 book on bullshit, it is just this lack of connection to a concern with truth, this indifference to how things really are, that I regard as the essence of bullshit. Goodell's news conference was the essence of bullshit about football and brain injury. Player safety this, equipment that, heads up this, coaching technique that. You could say this is predictable bullshit from the chief executive of a $10 billion 
billion-dollar corporation trying to forestall its decline. But Goodell has the biggest salary and soapbox and the most resources and influence. He is the Koch brothers of football bullshit. Just as adherents of Trump or Sanders parrot their candidates' bullshit, football has its army of bullshit toadies, too. High school coaches, because of whom they coach, might be the most dangerous football bullshitters of all. The San Jose Mercury News, as part of its Super Bowl coverage, asked a bunch of local high school coaches this question. What do you tell parents whose kids want to play football but are concerned about head injuries? Here is what a few of the coaches said. I tell parents, if you allow your child to play football, he is no more at risk for getting hurt than if he played any other contact sport. Bullshit. A 2009 (laughs) study of more than 100 high schools found the rate of severe injury was 33% higher in football than the next sport, wrestling. The number one factor in allowing your son to play football should be his desire to play. If he has the desire to play, you should support that desire. Bullshit. Your son is a minor. Parents should decide. The risk of injury is what creates the emotional response that you find in young men who play football as opposed to other sports. If we take football away, young men are going to find this environment elsewhere, and this is what scares me. Bullshit. I let parents know that there is a risk involved, but no greater risk than riding your bike or skateboard without a helmet or playing soccer nowadays without any head protection. Along this line, Goodell actually said there are risks sitting on a couch. You may have heard that. I'm sure high school coaches will now start using the couch line bullshit. There are as many concussions in soccer, one coach said he says. Bullshit. A 2007 study found six times as many concussions in high school football as in boys soccer and four times as many as in girls soccer. The character growth and values learned playing football can come from no other life experience short of military duty. No other life experience. None. Bullshit. Football is becoming safer, but it will take time to teach the different techniques to the younger generation so that it follows them through high school and beyond. Bullshit. I'll name my final bullshitter. He is Hank Roberts, coach of Santa Clara High School, and here's some bullshit that he tells parents. I tell them a few things. I bring up the John Harbaugh letter about football being the last bastion of manhood and how every young man needs to do something that is going to teach them to get back up when they have been physically beaten. That teaches them about the qualities of teamwork. This was some bullshit that the Baltimore Ravens posted under Harbaugh's name on the team's website last April. That that began, the game of football is under attack. It was bullshit that it is bullshit. Now, Coach Roberts went on. I also bring up another study about high school football being as dangerous as playing the tuba in the band. <sighs> I found this study. It was published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2012. It compared the rates of Parkinson's, ALS, and dementia among boys who played football and boys who were in the band, glee club, or choir in two high schools in Rochester, Minnesota from 1946 to 1956. That's right. People who played football 60 to 70 years ago. Coach Roberts probably acquired this bullshit by reading a moronic post or at least the moronic headline about this irrelevant study on a meathead coaching site called Football Scoop. And now he tells parents that modern football is, quote, as dangerous as, end quote, playing the tuba. I'd say that bullshitter Roger Goodell should pay bullshitter Coach Roberts and these other high school coach bullshitters for their bullshit. But they are regurgitating the NFL's bullshit just fine for free. That was the shit. That was not bullshit. Josh, what's your king power? So you guys all remember uh, Super Bowl twenty three, Bengals 49ers. That sure. was the Montana to John Taylor 
fourth best on Justin Peters' rankings, one of the all-time greats. So the halftime show that year was uh, we need to we need to get uh, Justin. We need to lock him back in a room and force him to watch all of the halftime shows or rank all of the halftime shows because this one has to be it, it has to be in a place of honor on the list. This was uh, Bebop bamboozled in 3D. Mm. which was uh, essentially a gigantic card trick performed by a character named Elvis Presto. And uh, I'm going to play for you how Bob Costas introduced this halftime show on NBC. All right. Now, before we go any further, I'd just like to say publicly, this is the single proudest moment of my life. (laughs) Okay, it's showtime. We're going to throw out a magic potion, a magic word or two, and see what happens. Abracadabra. Hocus Pocus. Albert Icky Woods? One. So you got your sign of the times there with the Icky Woods uh, reference. You also have Bob Costas kind of being a sarcastic. Uh, I, I'm surprised that he was able to get away with that. He does Bob. that once in a while. Come on. He's subversive. He's subversive. He, it was uh, a moment. He does of, it with a wink. <laughs> a moment of great. Subversion. He was treating this uh, halftime show with all of the decorum and seriousness that it deserved. So in an interview with USA Today's Nina Mandel, the producer of that halftime show, a Minnesotan named Dan Witkowski, said he got the gig by placing a cold call to the NFL. <laughs> this is how halftime shows were planned in this 1989. Was 1989? Yeah. Sat in a boiler room, like, called all the major <laughs> sports leagues. <laughs> Hello, Major League Baseball. Hello, indoor <laughs> soccer, MISL. <laughs> Like, hey, uh, I'm a guy from Minnesota. I've got an idea. Uh, let's do a, a card trick for the halftime show. And it'll be in 3D by an Elvis impersonator. Yes. Sold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, makes sense. So Witkowski explained uh, all of the baby boomers were trying to cling on to the past. And so it just all kind of clicked from that standpoint. That's his explanation for uh, a 50s-themed Elvis impersonator card trick. All right, let's uh, listen to another clip from this halftime show. The NFL and Magicom Entertainment present a Super Bowl halftime extravaganza. Starring at Prince of Prestidigitation, Elvis Presto. It's Bebop, Bam Puto. Okay, so Witkowski said in another interview with the website Pot. Uh, pop dust. It was all meant to be very tongue-in-cheek. It's all very much a lampoon. I think it all started when we hit on the name Elvis Presto. I think that must have been another boiler room situation. Uh, Pesca. Elvis. Popo. Bloppo. Presto. All right. I'm calling Pete Roselle. Um, he says the rest kind of evolved from there. We did have the Harley Davidson company make 102 custom white and chrome motorcycles for us, which was really great fun. That's a lot of motorcycles. So... Um, a lot of the show consisted of, as um, great entertainment spectacles often do, just a guy laying out in ex- extraordinary precise detail the steps of a kind of complicated card trick. So uh, let's hear that. You're going to find this card trick's going to blow your mind. But first you have to pick a card. Come on and concentrate real hard. You pick your card by clapping hands so everybody in the stand lets you 
spirit for your card because the choice depends on your applause. You gotta pick a card with applause. You gotta pick a card with applause. Which card it's gonna be depends on just how loud you clap, my friend. Card one, two, three, four. Now clap for the card that you don't. <laughs> All great songs contain a lyric. Well, uh, the the card depends on, and then you know, just e- explaining uh, what the card depends on. The card depends on. It's just a quality uh, song lyric. So you guys might be surprised, given how professional an operation this was, that the guy who was supposed to play Elvis Presto quit a day and a half before because he got some other Elvis impersonator gig, uh, an Elvis impersonator gig that it was apparently way more important than the Super Bowl halftime show. And so they had to fill it with a guy who was a former uh, dancer from the TV show Solid Gold, mm. a guy named Alex Cole. He, he had did the LeMay pants how... already. Uh, he was asked to don the gold LeMay suit. You must have read the story from USA Today in 1989. I just know um, LeMay. <laughs> he did not know how to do any of the tricks. So <laughs> <laughs> the rehearsal time was devoted to him learning the tricks in a day. Um and they just pulled it off with a plum. Bob Costas was really impressed. I'm not going to go into the details. It involved a blimp and Diet Coke was there. But I guess just after watching Beyonce, Bruno Mars, this was like in our lifetimes this happened. Yeah. It's yeah. really it's, – it's, it just makes you – Do you know how you want to believe that <laughs> – there's a point in your lifetime when things became normal. <laughs> and for me, I would date that to around, you know, 1986, 1987, 1988. But no, clearly not the case. Not yet and I'm normal. End, yeah, not yet, no. not yet normal. I'm going to end on the final note from our Minnesotan producer who uh, said in, in one of these interviews, the highlight for me was I got to ride in the Oscar Mayer Wiener Mobile. And for that, we can all be thankful. Uh, we love your th- feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. Also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. And leave us a comment and a rating. It's helpful for the program. Become a fan on Facebook, facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer this week is Jason DeLeon. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelma Beatty, and thanks for listening. The Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.